Hey everyone, welcome to What's the Why podcast with Tiago, Nick and Max. Join us on a perpetual pursuit of knowledge where we chat about the why behind all intriguing things happening on this rock called Earth. Welcome Nick. Thank you Max, thank you for having me. Uh, you also did just get your microphone, so I'm, I'm, you look pretty giddy using your new equipment. I hope your voice I can't comes wait to use it. <laughs> and of course we have Tiago. How's it going, Tiago? Hello, everyone. All good, Max. Thank you. Now, guys, I we, I know you guys have some pretty heavy subjects, which we can dive into a lot. Um, maybe we can start with something quite light from my side. What do you guys think? Yeah, sure, boo. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. So I just wanted to call this out. I, w- I was doing some counting of um, why the three of us are, are good friends and uh, what we've covered. Between the three of us, I think we speak seven or eight languages and we've lived in, I think the number was 12 countries altogether. Now, most of that is just because of me because, you know, no country wants me there for too long. But uh, you know, we, we, we cover a good part of the world. Maybe one day one of you guys will learn Chinese and we can do it in Mandarin. That'd be fantastic. My point of the week is that if you have uh, if you have had plastic surgery, studies have shown that you actually get worse at recognizing other people's... They did some tests and they said after they've had Botox, not only were they worse at recognizing people's emotions, like uh, their expressions, they were also worse at understanding emotions when they were reading a sentence. And that really messed with me. Is that because when you put Botox on your face, you can't, you can't have, or, or, or your emotions are a little bit, uh, I don't know, like stuck, because you, you can't have those facial expressions as much as you could do if you, if you didn't have Botox. So if you can't have them, that doesn't allow you to recognize them on other people's faces. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, kind of. I, I, I think the point was, so the, I didn't read into that particularly uh, that particular article too much because I, I really went to like the theory of um, expressions and how I'll tell you about this kind of mad scientist in in in, in inverted commas. But um, it was the idea that you actually replicate a lot of the expressions you see, and when you're absorbing or when you're like recognizing someone's expressions you're actually trying to map their expressions onto what you do. You know, you're trying to recognize, hey, when I do that, how do I feel? And that's one of the, that kind of leads you to another um, aspect of it, which was different cultures look at different expressions differently. So like um, the punchline here is the West look at the mouth a lot more for expressions and emotions than the Far East does. So, yeah, I know, right? Everyone's, uh, Tiago's face is like frowning a little bit. But the idea was, if you look at the emoticons, for example, and we've been talking about emoticons and emojis for a while uh, between us, the emoticons in the West are all uh, very heavy on the mouth. Think about it, like it's, it's, you know, it's like a, um, a, a smile is like a curved, you know, moon crescent facing up. And then if the mouth is a flat line, then you think someone's frowning or not very happy, right? But then if you look at like the Asian emoticons, and particularly in this case, the Japanese ones, a lot of the time, the mouth is just a straight line, and they change the symbols for the eyes. So like a smiley face in a lot of the uh, 
what is it called? Uh, gemoticons, J- Japanese emoticons, are um, the e- exponential operator. You know, that, that little cap that you put to like to the power of. So they'll put two of those for the eyes. And this is like a huge reflection of the fundamental difference in emotions. They they look at eyes more. And, and I guess there's things in culture, like you don't look at someone in the eyes for very long to sign a disrespect. And so, you know, they, 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 they base a lot of that off of like visual cues on um, everything above the nose. I found that really interesting. No, that is that is super interesting, man. My wife, uh, she 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 would need an emoticon for rolling eyes. Whenever I say something, dude, she always roll her fucking eyes back. <laughs> so I guess uh, is there is there emoji for people that roll their eyes? I think so. Is it? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, but the recent one, you know, because now they can put color into it, so then you can see the eyes are looking at the top. But I guess when it's just the symbols, not really. Oh yeah, okay. I don't use it. Yeah, I don't. I don't use emojis. The only emoji that I use is the laughing one, hmm. when you send me something funny. But I never use emojis. And the monkey one, when I say, when I when I do something stupid, and then I recognize I did something stupid, I always use the monkey one. It's just because you're hairy as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am. I am. It's my Portuguese heritage, you know. What are you gonna say, Nick? Um, wasn't it you, Max, that were telling us about how emojis are becoming the fastest growing um, language on the planet? Yeah, so they the study was showing how um, emoticons, if it's considered a language, was, which it is, it's a method of communication, is the fastest growing and fastest evolving language ever for humans. And they kind of took it as a comparison to uh, hieroglyphs. So they're saying that the rate of change is so high because the, you know there's actually one council it's um it's like an organization it's called the unicode council and like these big companies ibm and stuff they pay like 20 grand for their representatives to be part of that and that one single council determines and approves all new emoticons that come through and the reason they need to do that is because at the end of the day it's all code right so they need to have one standardized code so that it can appear on all platforms and they said that it's the fo- and and then there are like a lot of weird statistics ca- that came with it. Something like seventy uh, percent of those between the ages of eighteen to twenty five in the UK find it easier to communicate emotions with emoticons. I, I guess that's more like you know you can read that in different ways. You know, texting someone is extremely hard now unless you use a lot of words, which people can't be bothered and a lot of punctuation. So now it's just random emoticons like aubergine, you know, and <laughs> stuff like that for when you're actually trying to be like to the point. Do you think it's going to just complement our language or eventually one day it will actually, you will be able to have a conversation just based off emojis? Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think you've, you've never, you've ever seen this many emoticons in like the workplace. If I think about my company, it's on, you know, we do slacks a lot. Think about how many times now when you say, okay, when you're, when you're like in agreement, you don't even say, okay, yes, whatever. Cause I might come across as a bit cold. You just send thumbs up, peace signs, that kind of stuff. Right. I actually don't like the thumbs up. I think when someone gives me the thumbs up, it's like, yeah, whatever. Dude. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Maybe that's just because you talk too much and people are like, yeah, shut, shut, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, you were, um, you were saying that, that, like, you know, like across, across the world, right? Like different regions will interpret facial expressions and essentially emojis started or are stemming from facial expressions, right? Um, so by having one institution or like one organization approving all emojis out there, 
um, are we then going to like one universal, like, is that going to be like the first universal language that everyone uses and can understand? That would be the ultimate question with regards to what I'm saying is how different smiles can mean different things at different times. So it's all about context and different cultures look at um, expressions in different ways. So <clears throat> I want to call out this guy called, uh, okay, I'm going to butcher his name. I think he's French. So Duchenne, so D-U-C-H-E-N-N-E. He took this guy and he started shocking, like electrocuting his face to see the different emotions that are possible. And he found 60 different uh, expressions. And so the main one is called the Duchenne smile. And you can see this guy's face is like, it, it's kind of creepy because you can see he wasn't happy, like his shoulder was a slump, but you see the two nodes on the side of his face. And it was like the Joker laugh that goes cheek to cheek and his eyes are like, you know, his eyes look like it's smiling. And then he, he essentially started naming how different smiles for different people have a lot of different meanings so when chimps and let's say dogs smile it's actually a lot of times fear or nervousness even for like a baby um, if a baby has a grin it could either be fear or happiness and then um, one of the interesting things that got called out was there is also the fear smile so actually men tend to smile more when they're surrounded by those they consider of higher status which basically just means it's a stupid smile, right? Like if you're if you're like in a room and then everyone around you is maybe smarter and you're just going, <laughs> yeah, okay. How the hell can you test emotions on dead people? That for me just doesn't make any sense. It wasn't emotions. He was looking at expressions. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So he was using those faces, shocking the faces to see what muscles um, flex to show each expression and trying to understand what are expressions. But anyways, the implication of all of this was like AI. So as much as computers are evolving, one of the things they're obviously trying to do is, is, is make computers more emotionally intelligent, the EQ side. But it's extremely difficult because a set of, a set of expressions already doesn't mean what it means to another human being. Um, and th so you can confuse fear with surprise very easily. You can confuse um, sarcasm and sarcasm could be hostility essentially with joy. So if you time a laugh at the wrong time, it comes across as really aggressive. Imagine you're negotiating and then I said, okay, I want 30% and you're like, ha. So, so based on that, could we, could we imagine that emojis could be a, a bridge to, to gap? Dude, for you know, sure. Those misunderstanding or I mean, between languages or between generations or between understandings, like if if the, if humanity could agree on one emoji language, say, um, would that be a, a good vehicle for for further or better understanding? I'd imagine so, right? Because symbols mean, but uh, isn't that funny? Because then writing are symbols as well. But I, I guess with this, yeah, facial expressions. But again, how do you make the same sign? same face mean that it takes so much globalization think about just here's a not a perfect example but symbols can mean different things the store the swastika didn't mean hit um didn't mean nazi you know nazism um or nazi germany up until the nazis you know it it, it, it was like a buddhist thing it, it was in the east it had a totally different meaning and so taking certain symbols and making sure that every single human being that you're trying to communicate it to understands that is really hard. Um, here, here's a wild thought. 
you know we've been trying to communicate with like we sent out that um, i think a message burst to aliens we, we've been like shooting information into into space and they put i think beethoven put some classical music in there we put some literature and, and things like that right like a lot of the arts into it so what it and and then i think they even put some writing to see if the people understand but like symbolic and colors and stuff like that and so if you started getting emoticons, that wouldn't mean anything to a non-human because those are purely human expressions. So it's only good for human-to-human contact. And we've already proven you could be from a different part of the world and it doesn't mean anything to you. So I don't know. Just on think- Nick's point. So I get, I, I guess that what you're trying to say is and, and emo- emojis will give a tone to messages. So many times we get text messages or emails wrong because you can't understand the tone and we always see see it via our perspective with with emojis i think that will be the bridge for us to truly understand each other and then to max's point about sending messages to to space (laughs) beethoven send send a message to space i don't know i I can't remember it's beethoven i'm trying to remember point i didn't look it up (laughs) but yeah we're we're sending we're sending that no i'm gonna look it up i don't know how long would it take for the message to actually get to the moon it's like things are so far away what do you mean to the moon dude it gets to the international space station in less than a- what are you talking about dude <laughs> there's radio what are you we communicate with international space station with video calls what do you mean yeah. how long does it take because because <laughs> i was thinking because i was thinking that planets are like light years away <laughs> so fucking sound travels way slower than light, than light so i was thinking shit Beethoven's message is still on his way on its way to the fucking <laughs> Nick you need I feel like Nick you need to permanently unmute your microphone so we can hear the laugh and make fun of Tiago <laughs> he says that while taking another sip of whiskey <laughs> no I, Tiago I, I wasn't I wasn't laughing at you Tiago no um, it's whatever no Tiago it's not Igloo Fest or Tomorrowland they're not blasting speakers in the general direction of another planet you know <laughs> How the fuck would Beethoven back then have a radio send, to send hey, music up to space? How no, does no, that but, sound smarter than what I said? No, 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 no doubt. I, I should look up what they were sending it in, in what medium. Yeah, because depending on the medium, they'd have to have a receiver of some sort. Interesting question, though. How and who decided what to broadcast? I mean, like the content of that message. Who decided that Beethoven was best to represent humanity? Okay, listen, I'm going to get roasted by people if it wasn't Beethoven. I didn't mean Beethoven. I, it, it could be Bach for all I care. I'm just trying to, I just remember that there was art in it, okay? And I'm, hopefully they put in some Asian art as well, and some Middle Eastern art as well, okay? And some African art as well. <laughs> One more thing, this is really interesting. There is a called the misery smile, or the miserable smile. And they analyzed... 4,800 photos of athletes competing in the Athens Summer Olympic Games. And they found that the silver medalists who lost their final matches tended to produce more smiles. Even, and this, before I say this point, I'm going to say why they, why they explained this. The idea is that uh, smiling could be learned. Um, they said even if they were blind from birth. So even if these athletes have been blind from birth when they were silver medalists and I guess they're trying to hint like the mo- even the most disappointed um, athletes, they would smile more than like the gold medalists. So something about like smiling could mean 18, 60 different things in, in this case. Pretty interesting, I think. Nick, you have been reading some news. I live in Switzerland and so uh, last week... 
uh, we've had a votation like we have so many times in Switzerland uh, over the year. Um, but yeah, so what happened is that we voted on a very sensitive subject, which is face covering. Um, and this this votation or, um, yeah, basically in Switzerland, the votation means that we're going to modify the constitution of the country. And so we, we're getting a new law into or like a new item into the constitution. And, and so the, the subject of that um, constitutional change was um, was putting the fact that no one in the country as of now is allowed to cover their faces. Uh, which seemed a bit odd given the timing with the coronavirus and everything. But um, so essentially uh, they said it was for security reasons. So they, they named like, um, you know, they, right. they raised some security, mm. yeah, some security threats or whatever with a, with a football hooligans, for instance, or protesters. But what it was really aiming at, and it was actually not even made that, that they didn't even hide it, is that it was to fight, um, to fight uh, Muslim women from covering their faces. Uh, which is, first of all, very surprising for a forward-thinking country like Switzerland. Uh, and so it, it got me thinking of how in 2021 we could get people to even consider this. And not only did Switzerland consider it, we, as a country, I guess, um, the majority of voters accepted it. So now it is interrogated in the constitution, in the Swiss constitution, that you are no longer allowed to cover your face. Um, and so, of course, that, that raises a lot of questions, um, and I find it a bit disappointing, uh, to be to, to say the least. But it also got me thinking about how we fit that in into like a broader horizon. So, especially on, on the angle of how does Europe in general uh, consider this? And then uh, doing a bit of research on it, I was actually even more surprised to see that over the past decade or so. We, um, like in Europe, at least, if I can say we, uh, in Europe, there's been numbers of, of laws and new laws that have been incrementally, uh, slowly but incrementally, restricting um, people from covering their faces or even going further, restricting certain religious or cultural, um, um, I would say, practices to be or that were allowed within countries. Um, so countries like in Scandinavia, like Denmark, the Netherlands, France, now Switzerland have now officially banned the cover of faces, but also other religious practices such as, uh, you know, the slaughtering of animals, for instance. And so my question was, uh, my question was, uh, is Europe as a continent or like an area of the world getting more and more intolerant towards what we could call non-European traits or, um, or yeah, or, or culture, I don't know. Uh, and why such radical changes and radical laws are getting accepted by so many countries. Can I just ask you a question? So I don't know Switzerland laws, but can you reverse, can you reverse this, this uh, how do you Const call it? Constitutional change. Yeah, can you make another referendum? Because I don't know how many people voted, but can you go, uh, not enough people voted or the demographic that voted is not the, it's not it's not only the one that we wanted to vote. So can you go and say again, let's, let's have another referendum on this. This is quite an important thing to have everyone voting, at least 80% of the voters should vote. 
Yeah, no, definitely. Um, uh, you can. Uh, so um, that's the beauty about the Swiss law system um, and, and political system. So it's a direct democracy. So everyone can can initiate a change if they want, if they get enough traction, enough signatures from the beginning. Um, it, it just takes a, a long time and a lot of effort and I guess some political capital as well. Um, yeah, you, you could. You could. It's probably like a... a encouraging thought <laughs> that uh that we could revert those kind of changes and, and my interpretation of it is, is that especially the far right parties here in, in in switzerland and across europe um want to have or they're gonna they, they want to deploy some sort of national nationalistic or nationalism um protections or laws or whatever that whatever you call it um, and and it, it res resonates a bit with, or if I can circle back with the rotation that Switzerland had on minarets a few years back, right? In 2008, mm. 2009, I can remember, um, we, we voted as a country to forbid any minarets to be built on, on Swiss soil. And so my question is, are we trying to prevent... Oh, but just explain what those are. So the minarets are the, the the towers that are normally built next to uh, mosques. mosques to call um, to call for prayers. Um, mm -hmm. So you come across them uh, across the Middle East uh, and and most Muslim countries often um, to to call um, to call people to the prayer. And an interesting rhetoric around that was, well, they don't allow us to build churches in the Middle East. So why should we allow them to build mosques? In, in yeah, Europe? exactly. But so my question is, because that that's like, what is it like an eye, eye for an eye? That's that's not very constructive, yeah. I'd say. Um, so so my question is, is Europe trying to to cut any um, any exhibition of another culture or another religion that is not what we consider European or Caucasian from happening on their soil or is it just because because of some sort of a security threat, or are we actually generally try to help women uh, in in like we're Muslim women because we consider that they're imprisoned? Like, um, who are we to make that call? Who are, who are we to make that judgment? And then the tricky thing is they found people on both sides of that argument, you know, and from both sides of the of the cultural divide. So they found like they found muslim people to come to come out and say that yeah indeed i want to have the choice but i cannot in my in, in my environment and i would need the law to help me in whatever regard do you think there's a legitimate concern that european countries want to become more secular so completely detached any religion from state and from laws that they have a concern these countries have a concern that if the muslim fight grows and grows and grows they will lose the secular the secularism in laws. You think that that this is where this concern is coming in, and why this this majority is, is pulling and pushing for these for these laws. I mean, supporters of these bans, I think, um, in, in large part, maintain that, or at least they argue that prohibition of 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 the veil um, is 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 just to encourage cultural assimilation. So, if you move towards say one country in Europe, you should. You should behave and act as the as the inhabitants of that people. But I also think um, that that Europe and and other countries like such as the United States, for instance, Canada, or, like, the, like their just success has been built on pluriculturalism, right? I mean, it's it, we need we need different opinions. Like, um, and I think, and and to your point, I, I do think that certain parties or certain uh, groups of people are actually trying 
to to protect their what they consider their their features and their story and their culture but i think you're not protecting anything it's it's going back in time it's taking a step back like like in the middle east and when i was in the uae there are a lot of government buildings you're not allowed to enter it in shorts by the way like open toe shoes and shorts um, so I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm sorry. I, I, maybe I'm interjecting at the wrong point, but the idea that clothing somehow matters is maybe ridiculous in its own way. Yeah, but what I'm surprised about is that, that countries like all the ones that we talked about earlier uh, that pride themselves on freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom like you, you can act and you should be able to practice your religion as you want. Um, why would you incrementally limit the rights of those religions or those religion artifacts or those religion exhibition? As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, aren't we tackling a problem that isn't a problem? Yeah. And I mean that, for instance, that was the that was the stand of the Swiss government. They were they were they were encouraging people not to to accept that referendum. Um, I don't aren't we just limiting ourselves and limiting? I mean, just going yeah. against our very core and like the core of our democracies and our countries. I, I don't know. I, as a non-European, it's always super hard to give an opinion too because I've been in numerous uh, situations where I was in, when I was in Switzerland or UK at the time, people would ask for your opinion and go, like, I have my personal opinion, but does it really matter? Because the other side I can say is, well, you're a democracy. You guys voted on it and it passed. So how can you even, how can you then have like social pressure to force the government to not accept a democratically passed process. And America recently just came out of that as well. So the question is, how many of, how, what is the proportion of the population that voted? That was kind of what Tiago was going towards. You know, whenever they say, oh, not everyone voted. Well, well, yeah, but I think turnout for voting isn't that high now anyways, unless you made it super easy to vote. Yeah, the, no. I and is, I feel this is one of the major loopholes of democracy as well, is that thinking that the majority is right. Majority is not always right, and there has to be some defensive mechanisms that, whenever the majority is trying to push for a right, for a right, for a law that that infringes on other people's <laughs> human rights. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> just to lighten the mood a bit, the fact that you said "rate" just shows how how long you've been working <laughs> in the hotel OTA world. <laughs> So, so for those listening, all three of us work in the hotel world, and in the hotel world, the number one thing you want to do is get the best rate, the best price for any inventory. And Tiago's already going, ah, you got to be pushing for the best rate. Salesman through, salesman through and through there. You're saying that the, the general population might be pushing for like their I'm idea? Just, yeah, I'm just saying that there's a major loophole in democracy when we think that the majority knows what's right and we should follow what the majority wants. And many times what the majority wants is not exactly what what is better for the country and, 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 and definitely not not the best for minorities. So there's this major loophole that I see with democracy. Yeah, definitely. Um, but again, um, as we were saying earlier, like we at least have a chance um, to, to revert it at some point. And, uh, and I really do hope that we do, at least in, in Switzerland. Um, but the... What I'm also hoping is that we're not going to continue with incrementally limiting the, the the possibility of being able to practice your own religion um, to a point, not only in Switzerland, but across the world, because it's... Um, but that is not it, the case, right? They're not, they're not, <clears throat> they're not limiting uh, 
Muslims to practice Islamism or their religion in Switzerland. It's just the full face coverage. They can still wear a scarf and they can still cover their, their hair, but not full full on niqab, right? It's just, just that. You know, just a point on the democratic vote versus what you're kind of hinting towards is the professional opinion. Like there are some subject experts that might be able to come here and say, well, you know, sometimes votes are skewed by public opinion, which are very often influenced by mainstream media or media of any kind. And we all know that not everybody gets the right information, let alone the fact that the right information is being put out there. And maybe the odd per- the, the the average person voting for it doesn't know and one of the, that's one of the sentiments that people say well all the people that vote for these laws they they are the right wing and and close-minded people and maybe that creates more hate but that is a very common critic uh critique of 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 these votes and and these results well even if if i look at the uh, uh and last week's results, right? Um, I mean, only 48 point something percent of the population showed up or voted, uh, 51% of which uh, voted for it. So it's actually by, it's marginal, it's, it's, it's not even that much. So what we can deduct is that less than 25% of the actual population of Switzerland has voted and decided. Um, what we could also argue is that why didn't more people show up? What is preventing people from exercising their, you know, yeah. constitutional right to come and vote? And it's not complicated in Switzerland. You either need to show up on the day or you can just mail it for free in the majority of cases. So it's it's not as if yeah, but Nick, you know, voting is a big hassle. Who mails now? You know, I came to Canada and I had to mail in my uh, PR application. I, I, I thought I went back to three, year, uh, three decades in time. <laughs> I enough. can't email you? Nonsense. I will not do this on my weekend. Okay, so would you argue that if you could say, I'm going to oversimplify it uh, and not think about the logistics of it all, but if you could vote through an app, say that we managed to come up with an app that is secure enough and, and valid enough and that you could just like open it on the day of election and just cast your vote, do you think that would incentivize more people to speak up? If you made it swipe left and swipe right, yeah. <laughs> how, how do we ensure that... that- that people will really vote what they want to vote in and they're not being uh, forced to vote whatever other groups of people. We can't even ensure that now. Well, if you if you go to the ballot, to to the voting house or whatever, you and you are there alone, no one will know what you're going to vote. It's anonymous. But it's, uh, if it's in your phone and you're surround, surrounded by people, they can, in, they can influence you to vote in front of them and vote whatever they want you to vote. So I think that's the problem with, you know, yeah, but fair enough. But like in Switzerland, for instance, um, I'm going to look at, at, at my household. So my girlfriend and I, we both get the votation material in an envelope uh, and everyone just like takes the voting material out of the envelope. You just put a cross wherever you, whatever your decision is, you put it back in an envelope and you mail it back, right? It's easy, but it doesn't prevent anyone from coercing you into, you know, deciding on something that you don't want to. Yeah, there was Trump's all rhetoric when you watch yeah it. i know <laughs> yeah listen voter fraud is is given you know you can say that about any any test any result right you have to say okay given that there is no voter fraud given that there is no cheating given that whatever then you have to respect the result but yeah anyways i think we should move on i think it's a really interesting subject i think there are a couple of points that maybe we could look at further on 
Tiago. Cool, awesome. So the topic that I that I brought this week that I thought about speaking and bringing to the podcast this week is called the Red Massacre of 1902. I was going through this website called I Fucking Love Science. And it's a really cool website. And I was actually looking for something about Zoom meetings and why we get stressed when we look at our face during Zoom meetings. And I found this red massacre and it, it caught my attention. So I stumbled upon this, I opened this, and the story is about um, the, the French colony at the time, which was Vietnam, was by then was Indochina, and the city Hanoi. And there, were, there was a red problem. So the governor at the time, uh, there was extremely worried that uh, the bubonic plague would... Um, would would become a pandemic again in that city because there was a lot of reds. They were they already started spotting some some cases of 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 bubonic plague, so they wanted to to stop that. So what this guy created was he created a task team that would kill rats, and this task team became really efficient. They were killing six thousand rats, seven thousand rats per day, ten thousand rats, all the way to twenty thousand rats per day. Twenty thousand rats, which is insane. What do they do with the bodies? Twenty thousand uh, rats. They would just burn it. They would just burn it. Shit. And, and, and the scary thing was they were going into sewers and just like just catching them and killing them. It, 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 there was no poison at the time. I don't know how they were doing it. They were just, I don't know, they were just grabbing them, burning them, and that's what they were doing. So even the counting system, I don't know how they really counted it, but, the, but this is how they told the story. But this, this 20,000 rats they were killing a day wasn't sufficient to to stop the deflagration of the number of rats. So what they decided to do, they created a monitoring incentive for the population. So they, they, they announced that each person that they would kill rats, they would get a cent per each rat killed. And the way that they would count the rats killed, they would like just bring the, the rat tail to the to town hall and they would get a, a cent for each, for each um, rat tail. So temporarily, this was super successful. Thousands and thousands and thousands of rats were, were being killed every day. Hundreds of people were, were participating on this on this scheme, but eventually, a couple of months later, they 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 started seeing rats running around without a tail. So they're like, "Shit! Oh no! <laughs> what the hell is happening here?" So they started digging on this, and they they actually they actually found rat farms. So people were having rat farms outside of the city, where they would just cut the tail then release the rat into the city so that rat could breed more and more rats. So this way they, they kept on making money and making sure that, the, that it was sustainable for them to continue making money on this monetary scheme, uh, monetary, uh, monetary uh, incentive. So th this, this brought me three major questions. So are monetary incentives efficient? Uh, what are the cons of monetary incentives? And what does really motivate us in you know, day to day? So, so the idea that monetary incentive um, encourages corruption, like cheating? Uh, yeah, so I, I was reading through some Harvard Business Reviews and there's three major cons of monetary incentives. And one of them is unethical behavior. So it ferments unethical behavior in the sense of, in this, in this rat example, you want this to keep on going so you would farm rats and just cut the tail and go and go and, and get paid by that. There was another example with General Mills. They they have a product called they have a frozen pea product, and they found a lot of red, a lot of um, insect parts inside of those frozen uh, those frozen peas. So they decided to create a monetary incentive for the employees. If they found uh, insect parts, they would get they would get paid a bonus. So initially, 
it was really good. The, it, so, it kind of solved the problem, but people then started bringing insect parts from home or from wherever to put inside the inside the inside the frozen peas, and then and then get paid, uh, then get paid from that. So it it was one it was one of the major cons that was that found that uh, it, it breeds unethical behavior. So um, the the Virginia Tech University they, they made a they made a study that points out that, for example, service professionals such as auditors, contractors, lawyers, and consultants that work on, on hours, that they tend to over-report the hours that they work. So this oh, come is on, yeah. Yeah, of course. I used to be a consultant. Sorry. No, no, go on, go on. I used to be a consultant. Everyone does that. <laughs> so, so you see, it's one of the- I didn't do that. No, you didn't. I never did that. I worked extra hours. Guys. We believe you. The, the <laughs> other two cons would be it promotes individualism and team toxicity. So if, if you have a monetary incentive that is kind of uh, commissions in a sales company, and then you rank your, your employees by the commissions that are earning or by the number of sales that are earning, and then you, and, and then you show it to everyone, it, it builds kind of individualism because they're looking at, at this individual prize and it, it, it breeds team toxicity. People start envying each other. People start saying that, they can only get those leads because they're friends of this and this. So it breeds this kind of uh, team toxicity within companies as well. And the third con is temporary compliance. So psychologists say that these extrinsic motivators, so monetary incentive will be an, an extrinsic motivator, does not change attitudes because normally uh, attitudes um, do not change, do not give any commitment to any value or action. We do not we, we not commit we don't change our habits for for money as we change our habits for a specific value or a specific action. So it just creates a temporary uh, temporary change. So these are the major cons of of uh, monetary incentives. Yeah, it's funny because uh, my girlfriend works in um, in a, in a company that is trying to drive purpose at work. Um, so what they do is that they try to bridge um, good behavior, um, or not sorry, sorry, not good behavior, but like good actions to good causes, um, believing that you can change the world one act at a time, right? And so what they focus on is um, is to to go to companies like how can we can we engage employees more in order to make their work more purposeful? And what they found out as well uh, in their data is exactly what you meant is that uh, a monetary incentive is not effective or it is temporary effective but it's not going to be effective in the long run unless your employees are committed to the values of your company so your 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 employees need to be uh, or the coworkers or whatever uh, they, they need to to believe in in what the company is doing and they need to be aligned with the purpose of it um, and you can throw as much money at them as you want uh, it's not going to create any change uh, and it's not an effective way to get people motivated it actually, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Oh, go for it. I was just going to say it's not intuitive at all because you would think that money is always the thing that will motivate you the most. It's always that that if you have a bonus, a very fat bonus by the end of the year or by the end of the target, you would work harder, way harder. But as you say, it's all about job enjoyment, satisfaction, recognition by your by your leadership, uh, yeah. the, the purpose in what you're doing. That's the most important thing. That's what really motivates people, and, and psychologists call that. Uh, intrinsic motivators yeah so but it's funny sorry uh it's funny to, to think that those rewards that we were always told were 
the shit uh, and that we were all going for. I mean, we work in sales. I mean, we know exactly what an incentive looks like. But it's true that those kind of financial rewards do not actually create a lasting commitment towards a company or towards uh, whatever institution you're working with. Um, and, and so the question is, what does? Yeah, but I think without monetary sorry, let's turn it the other way around. You don't have it. Watch how quickly motivation drops off. So I think it's one and, and another one of those cases where, yes, you can make the point that it's not maybe the most important, but is there even a single most important thing? You know, because you can take examples of these like NGOs and stuff like that where people do that for the long for the long run. But then how many times have you seen movies where the protagonist is doing some great job or, you know, our friends who are doing jobs that might be really beneficial. But then the moment that monetary reward becomes a necessity, right? Life becomes hard. Your personal life becomes hard and you need money for whatever. Watch your motivation drop off. Watch yourself. You watch you doubt, you know, what you're doing. Like, why am I doing all of this? I can't even pay for my own house. I can't survive this, you know, or, 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 or what jealousy and envy can do to you if you see someone else that has those means and you do not. So I think one of the faulty things about this logic and any organization that's really trying to say, you know, money is not the most important thing. It's like, you know, but then don't say that there is something else that is. You know, I, I think it's that rounded package. Um, I think the idea that you can always try find something intrinsic with a job to motivate someone other than money, um, I think it adds to it, but it would be similarly as faulty to say that that one thing is where it's really most important. I think, you, work I think for, you, you do a job for money. Come I, on. Think, I think what's wrong there, what, what you're saying is that we're not saying that people will work for free if it, it brings them enjoyment. What we're saying is uh, on top of your salary, if there's a monetary incentive for you to do extra, you will not be compelled to do it if it if it doesn't bring any kind of enjoyment or any kind of satisfaction or any kind of recognition. That's that's kind of what this, these studies are speaking about. Obviously, you need money. Obviously, you need salary. Obviously, you're going to work because of that. But going that extra mile or, or doing that extra extra bit of work for an X percentage of, re of reward will not be as uh, as appealing as you would think it would be. Yeah, and I also think that that as we, we go, I mean, and look at the, the famous millennial generation, but generations after us as well, everyone wants to have now a, a, a positive impact on its environment or on the world or on, on history. Uh, and and I, I strongly believe that people right now look to have that impact through, first of all, they work, but they also expect their employers and their colleagues and the institutions they work for work with to have a similar impact. So um, you will have more and more questions about, okay, do I want to work for an employer that doesn't support, you know, sustainable goals, for instance, or any other um, uh, on the best practices uh, to, to have a, a positive impact on its environment. And this is where I agree with Thiago. At some point, you you will Yes, you still need a salary. You still need uh, you still need money to, to to have it work. But once you have that, what's going to make you choose one company from another is not necessarily okay. This company will probably pay me a twenty percent bonus this year, and the other one will only pay me a ten percent. But okay, will this company support my values, or will this company help me or support me if I engage in you know extracurricular activities or work for an NGO or, or do charities or can I get my company to contribute to that charity etc cetera, etc cetera, um, and have that positive and I think that that is much more impactful in the long run 
for companies and for both company employees and companies uh, than just like throwing money or stock options at them. Yeah. What motivates you, Nick? Hmm? I think a what good engine? mixture of both. <laughs> I'd like for them to pay me so that I can fly myself to that charity event on the other side of the world. <laughs> it's a complete uh, simplification and a fallacy. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's a good way of seeing it. So you, you might be doing a job that pays you well just so that you can have a side hustle that gives you, uh, gives you a lot of enjoyment. So that, that job will pay for that side hustle that, that makes you feel fulfilled in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nick, we have a common friend that faced that question, right? He came out of university from like a technical college and then he was offered a job with an arms manufacturer, um, yes, particularly correct. missile design. And yeah. um, huge money, apparently. Like the money getting thrown at him or the money on the table was like, that was gangster money coming out of university. It was life-changing money. Yeah, it was like life-changing money. And then you said that his mother was like, his mother told him, if you take the job, I'll never speak to you again or something like that? No, something. no, no, no. Uh, but it, well, I mean, he did conversations, but he never took it. Like, for like, it, it just didn't fit his beliefs and his values. And yeah, again, uh, that's entirely up to, to people. Max, uh, you, were going, you were going through that as well, no? Because you were applying for a tobacco company and then you decided, then you were like, you were speaking with me and going, this did. I don't like smoking. I don't think smoking is healthy. I don't. I don't know if I should. Um, excuse me. I love smoking. Not tobacco. Um, <laughs> straight up, guys. I will say on this podcast: if it wasn't for my wife, I'd probably still be a smoker. <laughs> okay, so it was it's your wife that all... was telling you not to work for that company. No, no, no. No one ever told me no. Um, no, 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 no. I, okay, look. I, I think I simplify. I think I oversimplified the way I communicated that to you, friend. I'd rather learn something on the job. And in this case, it happened to be a tobacco company, but the idea was to set something up. I want a job where I do new things and I can discover new things and I can learn it. stupid as it is. But, you know, that's what I was looking for. So, no, 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 no. I wouldn't say that I'm a good example of that. But, yeah, whether it's a tobacco company, I mean, some people do feel really strongly against that. People have really strong feelings against oil companies sometimes. You know, my, my father-in-law works for an oil company and he said that, you know, you'd be surprised how many people found the motivation to just voice their concern about his job and what pays the salary you know they were like how could you work for them and yeah I, so yeah this guy called edward desi he he was saying that incentives from marshmallows all the way to money have a negative effect effect on intrinsic motivation so that whenever you give a monetary incentive on top of something that you enjoy doing what you enjoy doing, that the, the desire of continuing doing what you're doing will decrease uh, exponentially. It, mm. it's, he says it cancels each other, which it, which I find uh, interesting. Mm. But obviously, these there, there are researchers proving proving the otherwise, saying that monetary incentives are the way to go. So it's just one perspective of looking at it, of looking at this. I also just want to add a point that um, I, in case you made it sound like I turned down the job, I didn't get the job. So <laughs> So it's not even my choice. <laughs> Nick's laughing at me. I didn't get the job. I mean, I actually didn't even get to the interview stage. Like, apparently it was attractive. But to be honest, and, and also to go back to it, when you were talking about the rat story, uh, immediately I went, well, I would just farm rats. <laughs> Before you even got to the punchline, I was like, well, rats grow like rats. Literally, that's like the one thing you know about rats. You can get like a room, you know, or, or, or get like a box somewhere and you can breed like 13 rats and, you know, in a matter of days. Like, that was it. 
but but then it's it's also about how you how do you set the metric to measure that success like they they probably said okay just bring me a tail um so that we can see and that we don't end up with like bags full of rats but we could also like what what other metric could have they set up so that you could prove how many rats you had killed from the top of my head i can think of a scale but i don't i don't know if the scales back then were like really uh... you know you said 20,000 rats in one day uh, okay, so the dominant rat species in Europe is the brown rat, and they weigh between 140 to 500 grams. So let's take an even amount of 350 grams per rat. 20,000 rats per day is, what's the number I got? 700 million kilograms. Seven tons a day of rats. That's what I was asking. Like, what do you do with all that organic matter? It's like, whatever scale you have, I mean, literally, you're going to be measuring it in the truckload. Like, yeah. how do you... That's gross, man. But that's probably why they, they took tails. They said, like, just bring us the tails because we exactly. don't have to deal with the buddies. Exactly. How, how are you going to how are you gonna weight that? You, you can't weight that. It's too but that, that still doesn't prevent people from growing, growing or <laughs> rats, right? But don't rats' tails grow back? No. That's just, lizards, dude. <laughs> Wait, you don't have to add the second part. That just makes me look pretty stupid. Thank you. I'm getting I'm getting fucking back moron. at you from the bit from the Beethoven coma. <laughs> Not a fucking gecko, man. <laughs> All right, let's end it here. Um, fun chat. We'll find more topics. We'll keep going. Uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening to What's the White podcast, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. <laughs>